IBEC, the voice of Irish business. Welcome back to IBEC Response for our final episode on COP27. Today, we are joined by Fergal O'Brien, IBEC Executive Director of Lobbying and Influence, and Minister Eamon Ryan, Minister for the Environment, Climate and Communications, and Minister for Transport. They reflect on COP27 and where we go now. Hello, welcome to the last in the series of our podcast in relation to COP27. I'm Fergal O'Brien, um, Executive Director of Lobbying Influence in IBEC. This afternoon, I'm delighted to be joined by Minister Eamon Ryan. Minister, you're just back from Egypt. You've had a couple of days to absorb um, the cut and trust in negotiations and ultimately the outcomes. Um, at this stage, what are your reflections on COP27? What does it mean in terms of our progress uh, in, in, in relation to climate? And ultimately, what do you think it means for Irish citizens and the Irish economy? Okay, well, thank you, Fergal, and, and glad to be the last of these and hopefully maybe put a, a, a perspective after the event. Um, for me, it's one of pride. I think um, there was a significant development in the area of climate justice and loss and damage. And we had a really good team of civil servants there from the Department of Foreign Affairs, from my own Department of Environment, from the Department of Finance. And we worked collectively right in the centre of the negotiations. I I was honoured to be asked to be lead negotiator for the European Union on that issue of loss and damage. And I think we delivered in, in the sense, now listen, delivered a political commitment and one that is structured now within the Paris Agreement and the UN FCCC Convention. So it is in law. It's not insignificant. There's still a huge amount of work to be done to deliver it. The transition committee we'd agreed to establish will have to do a lot of work now to to work out the, the mosaic of different financial arrangements we'll need to provide for loss and damage. But it was no small decision. It was widely welcomed, I think, globally as well as here at home. Um, it's tinged with the fact that there wasn't sufficient progress on the whole area of mitigation, which was the second area we were looking for progress. But our decision in the European Council of Ministers meeting in, in Sharm el-Sheikh was that there wasn't sufficient rever- or any real reversal of ambition there so that you know it would be churlish, to say the least, for us not to agree the loss and damage side. So that was my, my main reaction and... and um, and uh, it was it was also very interesting. I mean, I was there for a week from Sunday mm. to Sunday. It was as interesting as you can get because, I mean, the process itself is a bit chaotic and a bit overblown or a bit kind of drawn out and all this kind of macho thing. Like It's like, you know, if you're at a party, what time are you there till I was there till four in the morning? Well, same sort of thing with negotiations. Like, you know. Sounds like social th- partnership of old almost. It does. Yeah. <laughs> how much sleep did you get? Oh, I didn't sleep for four days. And, you know, that, oh, great. Who's, who's that helping? It was Europe on the Wednesday which kind of broke the deadlock by changing our position and and saying we would establish a fund. And again, in the closing hours, it was Europe sitting down with the likes of Pakistan from the G77 and getting critical wording from our perspective on vulnerability, on the most vulnerable countries being protected, on the broadening of the base so that the likes of China or Saudi, Saudi Arabia or Qatar can't 
be legally restricted from from contributing. And also, I think, which is really critical, picking up what was said at the start of the COP, the Prime Minister Barbados, and backed up by President Macron of France, saying, we do have to reform the global financial systems here. That sounds no small thing. It isn't. But it is, it's acceleration of what's starting to happen in the IMF, the World Bank, the multilateral development banks. So it isn't just about a fund. It is about really fundamental reform of debt rules, of accessibility to special drawing rights. Um, And also, I'd say, in the broadening, not just including China, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, but also looking at which the European Union was the first to really put on the table, looking at industries like shipping, aviation, fossil fuel industries, that their oil and gas industries having a 3.9 trillion net income this year, they surely have to be part of the solution here on loss and damage, not just bystanders. So for all those reasons, as I said, I was proud, um, and but there's a lot of work to be done now just to deliver on it. Can I ask you about Europe's position in the context of support from other developed economies? Um, throughout some of the negotiations, um, Executive Vice President Timmermans caught a, a fairly frustrated figure from, from here. Um, in terms of the ultimate outcome, do you think... Was Europe strongly supported, sufficiently supported from your point of view um, by other developed countries in terms of making progress? Yeah, I think we were. I, th- I think we had a common understanding of, of what, what was needed. Now, we did take a different position on that Wednesday. It came about in the way these things sometimes do, in a fairly kind of frantic way. We, we had a meeting of the European ministers, a EU coordinating meeting, and that ran up right up to the wire pretty much as to when we were going to go into a plenary where Franz Timmerans delivered our statement mm. changing our position. Now, one of the things you'd regret is we didn't probably have time there to really brief the American, British, Australian, Canadian, mm. whatever, those other developed countries. So that was unfortunate. Um, but I don't think it fundamentally changed our common understanding of what needed to be done. Um, it was interesting in the Subsequent days, we did sit down with the British and the Americans and other developed countries. Um, again, it was a bit it was a bit chaotic at times, but in the end, I think there was broad agreement that this deal needed to be done. Mm-hmm. That this was a moment in time where the issue of climate justice had to be put centre stage, where we want to dispel the myth, and it is a myth in my mind, of a kind of a north south divide. We have a yep. common cause in this. And I think while the Americans maybe I'd say were a bit unhappy with us and the British too, I think in the end, I think we did the right thing and I think it doesn't leave us divided. If anything, I think it allows us to real double down together now on what is a common uh, recognition we have to focus now on the mitigation side and, and really accelerate that in next year's COP, which is about, which is a stock take of where we are in terms of reducing emissions. To what degree do you think the backdrop of economic downturn and I suppose quite a s- severe and significant energy crisis that we now face in Europe, to what degree did that kind of shape some of the outcomes? And I suppose I'm really kind of wondering, you know, as we work to, to 2030 and, and 2050, when we go through cycles of economic downturn, are there risks and could you see risks in this cop that we lose momentum? Um, I don't think so. I think one of the interesting questions at the start of the process was people saying, oh, well, has Europe given up on climate ambition because the Germans are looking for gas everywhere and because they're keeping, like Ireland is, coal-powered plants open. But I do think people maybe misunderstand that. I, I think they misunderstand 
the real transformation that's happening in the world. It is an acceleration towards renewables. The war has doubled the imperative for this switch, not just climate, but also security. And I think there was an interesting, I saw, I don't know, on Twitter this morning, Stefan Ramsdorf, the a scientist from Berlin just showing the latest graph of global investment in new power systems. And I think it was 50% solar this year, 25% wind, and then about 11% gas, and you know down to fractions for other power supplies. So it is actually, and, and actually that text was, was contained in the cover decision and in the, the agreement that um, it is about renewables now, and, uh, and there's a race on. It was interesting. One of the attractive things about COP is it, uh, I described it. It's a bit like plant championship on asset. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's big and it's you've loads of side events. Mm-hmm. I was at a couple of side events that maybe give a reflection of that. We had a global offshore wind energy alliance was established, and there was about ten ministers spoke at it. And someone described it, it was like the offshore Olympics. Kind of one minister after the other was saying, well, we're the first and we're going to be the best and we're going to be the quickest and we're the biggest. And there was competition. And, and competition because recognising that that's where it's going. That's where the money's going. That's where the um, emissions reductions are coming. That's where energy security comes. So I think that's happened. I mean, it's interesting, the last two years in COP in Glasgow, 26th COP, one of the big significant developments there was the rule book was finalised around trading and investment rules and so on. But also business turned up for the first time at scale to say, yeah, we're really going to do this. And it was the same this year. I mean, I met a couple of the large Irish business people and I was asking them, you know, how did you find it? Was it any good? Do you not find it a bit of a kind of a a bit of a warren of, of, of kind of um, meetings and so on? They said, no, it was really useful because they were meeting their top counterparts internationally. And they were all in common understanding, yeah, we're going to do this. If anything, frustration with the political system for not being quick enough to give the signals and direction. So I think I think the war and the recession we're in, potentially not in Ireland, but Europe and, and, and the high price cost of living crisis, I don't think it's going to delay. If anything, I think it's going to accelerate the uh, transition. And it's, it's great to see that. It's great to see the scale of investment that is coming true. At the same time, in Europe, it is going to bring us competitiveness challenges. Um, I suppose when we when we look at industry, interestingly, across Europe at the moment, we can see that demand for energy is, is falling. Um, and obviously, there's greater, there's greater investment in terms of renewables. There's greater awareness in terms of efficiency. But part of it is that, unfortunately, industry in, in Europe, in some cases, is becoming unviable and non-viable to competitor jurisdictions. Yeah. How do we keep up this momentum, keep the investment coming through while preserving industry at a competitive level within Europe? It's a good question, because it is a risk that um, because we are an energy importer and price taker, because we're a food importer and price taker, uh, that Europe, and you'd have to say we import our software from the West, from America, and most of our hardware from the East, from China, Europe is exposed. And I think that's why there's such common agreement around the European economic strategy, which is to go green, the Green New Deal, digital and green, because it's recognised that the only really effective play for us is to be very efficient to use a lot of electrification and everything, so we're using our own power, and trust the ingenuity and innovation and capability we have in Europe, where you've got political certainty around that development and also good market and regulatory systems, 
will be better than the states where they're de- they can't agree whether it's Tuesday or Wednesday in Congress, or in China where they don't have any oversight of some of the investment decisions, and therefore you end up making mistakes. And we have to hope that this bet that Europe has made, and it is a big bet, like betting the, the house on it at the moment, is is actually the best strategic way. You're, it's correct in the short run for the likes of the chemical industry, you know, where there's high dependence on gas as a feedstock, there's a rocky road. And and um, that's why the Germans, I can understand why my German colleague, colleague Robert Habak is, is kind of having to mind the gap, as it were, so that as we switch to this renewable, hyper-efficient new economy, electric vehicles rather than combustion engines, green steel, which they're now starting to deliver in Sweden, you know, that it will, firstly, it will find a market, which I think it will internationally, and secondly, that we can manage this transition. It is a just transition, so you don't just let the, you know, that you keep the economy afloat as you change course. And and I think that is doable, but it's 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 not easy. It is a testing time. Before we finish, Minister, to bring a couple of those issues back home, um, could I ask you about the reviewed version of the Climate Action Plan, which we, 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 we look forward to seeing shortly? What would you like to see different, additional, in terms of momentum com- coming from the, the, the next version of that? I think we'll get momentum in agriculture. I'm, I'm going to a meeting now at the Minister of Agriculture as it happens, so uh, I'm hopeful for good news there. Uh, I think in the likes of industry, there's real advantage for us, you know, and often it's by regulatory measures, you know, to say, okay, we we use less clinker in our cement. You know, it's, it's kind of sound very technical, but that way you can cut million tons of emissions, or that we use start to use cross-laminated timber in our buildings. And again, that's not easy because actually we've always done it this way. But things is going to change. Um, I think the switch to renewables is inevitable. So it's just a matter of trying to accelerate it as fast as we can. I think one of the biggest challenges in transport, because there we're dealing with an embedded system for 50, 60 years, going in a direction of dispersed car dependent system towards one where we really switch to active travel, public transport, reduce the demand for travel and as well as electrify. And that's not easy. I mean, and also transport emissions are continuing to rise significantly as we come out of COVID, but also as our economy grows, as we continue with this dispersed development model. So, and that's the biggest challenge, I think. And maybe I'm just wearing my transport minister's hat on when I say that, but I think it's the one where we need to have the most honest, open debate about the... There was a very good OECD report published three, four weeks ago about system change here. And, and it has to be changed for the better. It's not pointing the finger or guilt-tripping people, but not just for climate reasons. I'm sure you've seen it. Like, traffic's back. If we keep growing, if, if it keeps growing, we gridlock, and that's not in anyone's interest. Finally, Minister... Um as you look at what needs to be done in terms of the scale of investment right across the economy to bring about that kind of behaviour change in industry and, and consumers for householders, are you happy with the line of sight and the commitment from the financial resources, the spending from the state? And obviously others will need to, will, will need to provide that investment as well. But oh, yeah, in terms yeah. of as, as, we, as we face, again, more difficult um, financial and economic conditions, well, I, have, have we sufficient resources to make this happen? I was very pleased to read the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council this morning saying the government got it right in the budget. And that'll help us get keep the public funding going. There's trust and confidence in what we're doing in economic terms. I think that's we've seen what happened in the UK when you lose that trust. 
Uh, I met Stephen Nolan over in, in Sharm el-Sheikh. People know him in terms of the sustainable finance industry and, and we're very keen to get a sustainable finance centre, UNDP centre here, as one of the mechanisms, recognising we're already good at this. We're already issuing green bonds and a lot of our major financial institutions are committed to this in this direction. So I, I think this is a massive capital transition, in investment in capital, in transport infrastructure, in energy infrastructure, in uh, new ways of doing things in industry and so on. The more you de-risk it, where you understand, yeah, this is where it's going, and the more you de-risk the planning and the policy side of it, the less uncertainty, the lower the cost of capital, the easier it is to get funding. And I think that league table we were recently, we've gone from laggards up to mid-table. We switched that top table, or moving towards the top. I don't think finance is the problem. I think it's giving the real clear certainty of direction and measures to deliver and start to see progress, which we are starting to see in retrofitting, in renewables. Um, you know, I, it is doable. It, it's a big leap, but um, we're on the run-up, so we're not going to stop. Minister, thank you very much. Thanks for taking the time. Delighted to have you on our final episode. Thank you for listening to this episode. For more, just visit ibec.ie slash podcasts.